You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Break a Bat Podcast, where baseball meets Broadway. An attempt to show that my two favorite mediums don't have to live in such separate worlds and maybe even break some stigmas. We're happy to have you with us. Now let's play ball. I want a fastball on the outside corner. I want it more than I can tell. Al, you're on. Oh, oh, I'm on. Okay. Hi, everyone. Al Malafrante here coming at you for Break a Bet, where baseball meets Broadway on the Broadway Podcast Network. We have a really special show in store for you tonight as we're lucky enough to welcome one of those guests whose work and career has been a huge part of my life going all the way back to my childhood, which actually hasn't happened in a little while here on the on break a bat. So I'm pretty excited about that. Uh, to give you some context, as we love to do in these introductions, I want to take you back to those Saturdays as a young kid when my dad would take my sister and I out for one of those pizza and a movie nights. If you've listened to the show long enough, you certainly know that I come from a bit of a Disney family. And one of those special nights was when we went to go see Hercules in theaters right before summer vacation. Uh, when you've got a younger sister named Megan, uh, by default, we had I Won't Say I'm in Love playing on a loop throughout the summer as sung by the film's leading female character, who also went by the name of Meg. And of course, uh, that character was brought to life by an incredible actress who's as much of an all-star as anyone you're going to find in the Disney universe. In addition to her voice work in the gold standard of Zero to Hero stories, she also originated the role of Belle in the Disney on Broadway production of Beauty and the Beast, a performance that earned her a Tony and Drama Desk nomination. She also starred in both Cabaret and Thoroughly Modern Millie here on Broadway, and she actually just announced a very exciting Disney concert series titled Disney Princess the Concert, which will be coming your way this fall. We're so grateful she could join us tonight. So with that being said, I ask you all to please turn your attention to home plate. Just beyond the marquee, now batting Susan Egan. Susan, welcome to Break a Bat. Hi, Al. I think that is the greatest introduction I have ever experienced. I love it. Thank you. Oh, home plate. Can you tell I'm a fan, Susan? <laughs> is this home plate? Is this where we should learn to, you know, come back together and enter into the world, baseball and Broadway. It's all coming back. You are pulling on my heartstrings here, and it is such an honor to have you here. How are you? I'm really good. Thank you. And thank you for having me. How are you guys doing? You know what? All things considered, everything is great because, you know, what? we've got the exciting news that Broadway is coming back this September, and I know it's a super exciting time for you, too. I mentioned the concert series in the introduction. How stoked are you to get back on the stage? It's really exciting. I mean, not only um, is the world sort of opening back up and we're all going to experience live theater safely together, gathered um, with audiences and casts, but I get to do it with a show that is going to bring so much joy to people. Um, I love the Disney princesses. Uh, we've been doing a show called Broadway Princess Party for a few years, and this is morphed into Disney Princess the Concert. So it's sort of like we had this, you know, cute little frock that is now transformed into the ball gown that we always hope it would be and it just seems like the timing is right so not only does it is it exciting to to grow into this new entity but to be doing it at the end of covid when we all kind of need a little bit of joy um to have a show that is going to bring it is kind of exciting for us 
I couldn't agree more. And what I think is so cool is these concerts are born through an idea that you had some years ago right here in New York. You mentioned the Broadway Princess Party, which really took on an incredible life of its own, almost by accident. For the folks at home, how did you merge what you were doing independently with BPP? And, yeah, you know, so, to the point that, yeah, t- tell us about that. It's uh, such a good question. So Broadway Princess Party started as this idea of Benjamin Rauhala, our musical director. He just thought he had gone to one of those princess tea parties on the Disney cruise ship, (laughs) which he was on board to play a concert for Jeremy Jordan. Anyway, on a lark, they went on this, you know, little tea party and he was looking around. He's like, there's Ariel, there's Belle, there's Jasmine. He's like, I know all these girls on Broadway. Wouldn't it be hilarious if we got them together at Feinstein's 54 Below, like on a Monday night when everybody has the night off? And we just sang all the princess songs there were. And it was supposed to be this goofy one-off, but it sold out and it just sort of like caught storm, as you said, it kind of grassroots and built this huge following. And they did um, show after show at 54. And then we finally got an opportunity to take it outside of New York City and it worked just as well. And we toured that for like three years. And really the next step was to take it up to that symphony level. But to do that, we would need to call Disney and say, hey, what do you think of this idea? Because they own all the charts. <laughs> and I call Disney all the time to rent charts for them because I do a lot of symphony concerts. Um, but obviously this was a bigger ask. This is 26 songs, not like two songs. And it just coincided with Disney starting to develop a new campaign, which just launched now. I mean, these talks were a year and a half ago with Disney, um, but the new campaign just launched at the end of April and it's the ultimate princess celebration. And it's an 18 month long campaign whereby Disney is rebranding their princess brand to sort of bring them into the 21st century to really um, hone in on the qualities of courage and kindness and, uh, and also recognizing that While the princesses are still um, wonderful for families and young children, like you mentioned, you and your sister Megan going to see Hercules, um, that it's great for families, but it's really also still wonderful for like 25 to 35 year olds who were maybe seven or eight when The Little Mermaid came out. They still love these characters. You still love these characters. I still love these characters. And so Disney wants to give material to those adult lovers of these characters um, and new merchandise and things like that. So they're rebranding and they needed a live concert element as part of their global campaign. And what we were doing at Broadway Princess Party had not gone unnoticed. They saw it, they recognized it. They kind of loved that it was pretty like a contemporary take. It just fell right in line. It was one of those synergistic, wonderful, the stars align kind of, you know, a dream is wish your heart make moments. You know, and you've sung some classics. You mentioned that rich song catalog, you know, both on stage and screen for Disney. Uh, One of my favorites is Home, which, you know, you sung a little bit earlier in the show, uh, largely because I associate that, though, so closely with the Broadway production of Beauty and the Beast, which I think makes it pretty unique to the Disney catalog. And, you know, I won't say I'm in love, obviously, from Hercules. We talk a lot about how in baseball fans drive the performance. What song do you think pumps both you and the audience up the most when you're singing it on stage? 
such a good idea. And you're absolutely right. So our show is all about the fans. And it's not this feeling of like, oh, these four princesses show up and grace you with their presence. It's actually these four women show up who are just as big of fans of these characters as you are. The fact that we got to play them for five minutes on Broadway gives us some fun insight and some really ridiculous stories that we get to share with you. But we love the material as much as the audience does. And actually, we encourage the audience to sing with us on many occasions. Um, I mean, I think Let It Go is always a big moment um, for the audience because they are singing full voice. And then I also have to say, like Benjamin's arrangements of these songs, he rediscovers these songs. He arranges them in four-part harmony. So sometimes you're hearing them in kind of a new dynamic way. Um, we end act one with a, a medley from Frozen 2, which is really kicky, which I love. Um, but we also do like some of uh, Part of Your World in four-part harmony, which do you know, it's just a different way of hearing it. Um, and and then, of course, like everything that we're doing is backed up by, you know, this giant 45 foot LED screen of animation. So it's going to be pretty cool. But the but the music itself, we do get to dabble a little bit in the animation and the Broadway. We do I get to sing home, which is great. Um, but yeah, there's I mean, we represent all 12 princesses plus Elsa and Anna, who are their own franchise, just so you know, the queens. <laughs> now, does it feel like it's been 25 years since you joined the Disney family? And how did you get involved in what was, you know, the very first Disney on Broadway production? You are kind to say 25 years. It's actually been more than that. Um, Beauty opened 26 years ago, now 1994. And I started work on it um, the year before that. So 1993 a long time ago, I think there's this perception now that it's obvious that Disney should be a Broadway producer. Of course, they've got a million Broadway hits. But at the time, they had never produced anything in New York. And there was just a handful of Broadway producers. And Disney sort of came in um, and did things their own way. It wasn't entirely welcomed. There was a lot of negative press with it. And we didn't know the show would be a hit. I mean, it ran 13 years and that's great. But when we were putting it together, we didn't know if we were going to lay a giant egg. Like we didn't know if we were going to strike out, Al. It could have been a big like mess. Um, but but then it wasn't. And and then they followed it up with Lion King. And I just think it was a one-two punch and, and they became, you know, a mainstay of Broadway. And thank goodness, because I think what Disney was able to do was to show that this art form that some people were arguing was kind of dying out had a new life. And we were bringing people to the theater for the first time because they had loved the movies. And we expected the children to be new to theater, but their parents had never been to a play, a Broadway play. So that was exciting. And uh, because Disney was successful doing it, Universal came in, Fox came in, DreamWorks came in, um, and all of a sudden there was this sort of resurgence. You've got shows like Rent and Hairspray and, you know, things that were original, things that had been movies before now, you know, uh, being adapted for stage. And that was a relatively new idea in 1994. So it really left a legacy. But at the time, it was kind of stressful. <laughs> 
And, you know, it's funny you say left a legacy because when I think of, you know, the history of Beauty and the Beast and what that show means to the Broadway fan, it's still as beloved as ever. There's people crying out for a revival all the time. But, you know, you mentioned, you know, there was a little bit of adversity that you faced. I find it interesting that it got destroyed by critics when it first opened. You'd hear anything from it's a tourist trap. It's a spectacle, but not theater. Yeah. little baseball reference for you. Derek Jeter used to say, I take criticism as a challenge. Uh, but for you personally... Does it tick you off when that's happening? Or is there anything that you change about your own performance as you're hearing the criticisms that change people's minds? I really had great mentors. Um, I was playing opposite Terrence Mann. He's 20 years my senior. He had been the original Javert, the original Rum Tum Tugger and Cats. And he immediately became like a big brother, as did Burke Moses. And then I had these other mentors, Gary Beach as Lumiere, Beth Fowler as Mrs. Potts. And they just kept everything in perspective and they kept the energy backstage really marvelous and supportive and healthy. And it could have become a toxic situation to what Derek Jeter said. Totally right. You know, I was 24 doing these interviews with Katie Couric where she would ask questions like, how does it feel to be turning Broadway into six flags? And to have to answer that question graciously without making her look foolish, without making the show look foolish at age 24, I, again, had these great mentors. Jeffrey Katzenberg was still at Disney at the time. And he said, you know, if you're getting bad press, if they're trying to knock you off a pedestal, all that really means is that you're on a pedestal. So it's okay. (laughs) You know, if you weren't worth it, they wouldn't be trying to knock you off. And so I've, it's interesting because that was my first Broadway experience and it has so informed the way I um, navigate everything after that. Negative press doesn't bother me. It really has nothing to do with anything. Are they buying tickets? Are the people enjoying it? You know, Steve Sondheim was in the audience laughing and enjoying the show and his show Passion Across the Street won, won the, the, the Tony that year. But the fact that my idol, Steve Sondheim, could think like, yeah, there's place on this Broadway for Beauty and the Beast and for Passion. And of course there is. Of course there is. We're bringing audiences in there for the first time. They're going to be the people buying tickets to Sondheim in a couple of years. Do you know? So um, it really put things in perspective. I am basically unaffected by that kind of press these days. I think because of that early experience and having such smart people around me to sort of teach me how to navigate it. That's amazing. So it really conditioned you in a way. And look at the longevity that you've had in your career. So who would have thought that, you know, that that moment of, you know, something that could have really made people kind of back away oh. or, you know, not rise up to the occasion. You did the opposite. You went out there and absolutely. It could have. You're, ab- you're absolutely right about that. Well, I mean, I, well, I don't know whether I crushed it. You're sweet. But, <laughs> you got a but, Tony nomination. But it, I mean. <laughs> but it didn't stop me from pursuing it. I feel like I also had a really great college professor who said, if you're not getting bad reviews, some of the time you're not taking enough risk. So I think the thing about getting older, right, is understanding that you're not going to please everybody and you're going to please half the people half the time, right? Don't you want to be in the 50% that's happy? So what I say to people is stop trying to please others. Do what feels right for you and you're still going to have the same number of people liking what you do, but at least you'll be in that half that's happy. So just do your thing. (laughs) No, I, listen, I could not agree more. And what I find also interesting is how, you know, I you come from a dance background originally and Broadway was so new to you at the time. How'd you adapt to the whole Broadway lifestyle, eight shows a week, the whole nine yards? Well, that's why I think your 
um, program is so apt because people often say, you know, like, what's the difference between film and television and, and theater? And I go, actually, they're just not related at all. Being a Broadway actor is much more like being a professional athlete than being an actor in film. It is 100% about stamina. It's about making sure your body, your voice um, can do this day in and day out. You don't come off the ball field and just like sit back and eat bonbons. Like you are constantly conditioning your body, whether you're jumping into that ice bath or whatever you have to do for that pitching arm or whatever it, your your thing is. It's the same thing. In Beauty and the Beast, you're doing 22 fan kicks on the right leg. You better be doing something to balance that body back out when you get off. Um, so for me, it's, it was a lot of Pilates. Um, I've never stopped taking voice lessons. It's important to constantly keep training and keep those muscles as flexible and as balanced as possible. I have to give you props and you tell me if I'm wrong. I feel like your voice hasn't changed since 1994. I've seen, I've heard you sing, you know, some of this stuff, you know, I see your performances on YouTube and everything. I feel like it's exactly the same. Is it really tough to maintain that? No, actually it's, it's kind of funny. Um, a woman's voice matures when she's 35. Like you're just hitting your stride at 35. Men's voices mature at 18. So it's like, maybe it's, I don't know. I'm not a guy. So is it harder to maintain your voice? I don't know. I feel like, um, I feel like it's hard for me to listen to the Beauty and the Beast album because I can do so much more now than I could then. Um, I, I love sort of rediscovering all of this stuff. I also think like if you sing healthy, you'll have a long career. Um, I love with Princess Party, um, now Disney Princess, the concert with Benji Rahala as the musical director. He keeps us singing really, really healthy. He just understands vocal cords and voices uh, so well that he warms us up. He makes sure that um, he arranges for us knowing our voices. He knows exactly where our voices should sit and be. So um, it's a really healthy show to sing. And and you're sweet. Thank you for the compliment. <laughs> <laughs> well, that training reg regimen sounds a little bit like specialized batting practice, which I think is so cool. I have to know, did people used to tell you that you have a little Paige O'Hara thing going on when you oh were singing gosh. those tracks in the movie? I mean, I hope that's true. I love Paige. And I mean, just to talk about what a small world it is, um, I did the LA company of Beauty and the Beast as well. And her husband, Michael Piontek, was the standby for the Beast and Gaston. And he's an amazing actor, a great voice, super tall, like perfect guy for both those roles. Uh, but whenever he'd go on, I just felt like such an imposter. And we'd end the show and I'm like, okay, Michael, go home. You go back to the real bell now. Like I'm just this kind of, you know, goofy girl over here, like pretending to be your wife. So there you are. No, I love Paige. She's the bomb. And so, yeah, if I sound anything like her, I am thrilled. <laughs> well, you know what I think is cool is that you've made your own unique mark on the franchise when it would have been very easily, it would have been very easy to just want to do a carbon copy of what came before. And what's pretty cool is, um, you know, you end up getting Meg and Hercules and, but to my understanding, the company didn't want you to go out for it originally. Am I, is that how you were still doing the Beauty and the Beast production when they were, you know, the film was in development. So how'd you convince them otherwise to go out and land that role? It was the first time that I became a squeaky wheel. Like most actors are pleasers. Like, just tell me what you want me to do. But I had read that um, the description of the character of Meg was described as Barbara Stanwyck in the Lady Eve. And I 
for people who don't know who that is, I was obsessed. She was a very famous actress in the 30s and 40s. She played all like the gangster girlfriends and she was just a tough cookie. In fact, roles in those eras for women were really strong. Joan Crawford, Betty Davis, Lauren Bacall. And there was a style of acting, sort of a sing-songy kind of throaty kind of voice that went with that kind of acting. And this script just lent itself to that. And I really, really wanted to audition. And you're right, they wouldn't let me because... I mean, they saw me as Belle, which is nice that I was convincing as Belle, who is courageous and trades her life for her father. And Meg has like a string of bad boyfriends, sells her soul to the devil, like not the same, right? What they didn't know is that I myself, Susan Egan, had had a string of bad boyfriends, that sarcasm was probably the first thing my mother ever taught me. And where my voice sits as Meg is actually where I speak. And when I was Belle, Everything is a little bit higher, everything, because I'm trying to do the Paige O'Hara thing, right? <laughs> um, so they finally, just because they had to see me every night, they let me come in an audition just, I think, to shut me up, Al. So <laughs> I went in and I read the first scene where Meg meets Herc and he says, so are you all right, Miss? Uh, uh? And I said, Megara, my friends call me Meg. At least they would if I had any friends. So they give you a name along with all those rippling pectorals. And they just kind of said, with Susan, I go, I was trying to tell you, this is actually who I am. <laughs> Playing this role will be a form of therapy for me. So please. Um, and, and it's funny because it's weird weird when you audition for animation, there actually is no callback because they record you at your only audition. And that recording is called back, called back, called back and whittled down. And about like eight months later, I was no longer in New York doing the show. I was doing the show in LA and Michael Eisner's walking down the halls backstage where we were doing the show. And he's like, Egan, good, good job on your, on your Hercules audition. I thought, oh, I made it to Eisner. You know, they'll take like their top three to Eisner and, and then he gets to pick. And, um, and I got the job. I was so excited because, you know, Broadway is like that, that baseball game live in real time. And there might be kind of, you know, well, there are recordings of the baseball games and some <laughs> illegal recordings on YouTube of the Broadway shows, but but a Disney animated feature is something that is instantly timeless. Like it's going to last forever. My kids will see it. Their kids will see it. And so to get to play a character in one of those movies and just to watch the genius of the animators and our directors, John and Ron, um, up close, I mean you know, Disney's the top when it comes to animation. And it was very cool to just be able to sort of sit behind the scenes and give my little part, but also to play a character who's just um, kind of edgy and sarcastic and really different than the other Disney heroines was fun. I was going to mention that because the thing I love about Meg is that she's flawed, you know, string of bad boyfriends throughout the <laughs> film though, the audience ends up growing to love her because of how she redeems herself. You know, obviously she's very funny and sarcastic, certainly a great singer, but she goes through ups and downs that are in some ways different from your typical yeah. Disney heroine, because, you know, at many points, the audience right. has to wrap their head around whether she's good or evil. And I feel like from an actress's point of view, you have to be creative to, you know, project that inner journey. So she's likable by the time the credits hit. You obviously want her to become as beloved as Cinderella or Belle or Ariel, but I think in many ways she's like in her own 
class. Do you feel that way too? And when you're performing her, do you wish she has a little bit of a different trajectory where she's good from beginning to end, you know, like some of the other heroines? No, I mean, okay. So people do say like, uh, you know, are you sad that she's not a Disney princess? And it's like, no, I would never trade her. Um, First of all, I got to be Belle. So that's cool. I got the princess experience. But Meg is the only Disney heroine who, as you said, she starts off as a villain and then becomes a heroine. Like she has this full arc, which any actor is going to tell you, you know, you get to play those, the the heroines usually who are courageous and good and kind-hearted from the beginning to the end. And they're teaching the rest of the people how to behave. But in the case of this, that character's Hercules, you know, and, and Meg's the one who's really more like the beast starts out kind of bad and, and has to redeem herself, as you said. And I think honestly, it was the first time really seeing a female character like that. And it made her perhaps more accessible to people because she is flawed. So I often hear from people that how, how relatable Meg is. And, and I think that was my reaction. Like I relate to her because she did make terrible choices and we all do that, but she also shows you that it's never too late to redeem yourself, to make those changes, to choose the good side, do you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's a, it's such a unique mark on the sport or on the franchise, as we should say. But <laughs> you, I, I want to ask you about this because uh, Alan Menken wrote the incredible I Won't Say I'm In Love. Can you take me through that recording session? Do you know it's a hit as soon as you're reading the music? Okay. Um, <laughs> nobody's ever asked. And I know it's a hit right off. I, I mean... I thought so because it's Alan Menken and it's such a throwback to my favorite musical of all time, which is Little Shop of Horrors. So much of the music in Hercules really sort of like was a throwback to the urchins um, in Little Shop, that trio of ladies who just sang the coolest stuff in the show. Um, But recording, I won't say, it wasn't the first song written for the characters. So there was this beautiful soaring ballad uh, that was called um, I Can't Believe My Heart. And we recorded it, and it was a beautiful song. I mean, David Zippel lyrics, Alan making music, what's to go wrong? Except it wasn't working in the movie. They started animating. It wasn't working. And Ken Duncan, um, Meg's lead animator, a great guy, sort of said after a few weeks, like, I think the problem here is that Meg would never sing a soaring ballad. She would never admit that she was in love. And Alan went, oh, that's true. So they scrapped that song. They wrote a song that was all about denial. And again, I think it's not just this groovy, like in the pocket tune that he wrote, which he did, but it's the whole idea of the point of view of a girl being in denial. And the song isn't Meg solo. It is a duet between Meg and the muses. And it's an argument that Meg loses like the the muses like make the better argument and they win at the end and i think that's what makes a song so much fun to do and it's like a big karaoke song because you can get up there with your girlfriends your boyfriends and and have this argument um amongst each other for me the experience of recording it was really exciting but also completely mortifying because i'm in the studio with Roz ryan and venice and cheryl freeman and lilius white lashawn's like the coolest singers on Broadway. And I know these ladies because they're all Broadway girls and it's a really small, tight-knit group in New York, as you know. And, um, you know, they're just riffing up a storm and improvising all this stuff. And Alan wants me to improvise a riff at the end of the song. And I literally had to raise my hand and say, um, I don't know how to do that. He's like, seriously? And Lily's is like, seriously? Go, seriously. So, like... Alan had to plunk the riff out on the piano, you know, 
and I had to learn it and then pretend like it was au natural and um no oh, oh. like they I've now I've done it 40,000 times but in the studio <laughs> I felt very square <laughs> 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 but it was really humbling, Al, which is also great. Like just when you think your ego is going to like explode, um, you know, the universe just like whacks you upside the head, right? Oh, yeah. Always works that way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, you've continued to voice Meg in recent years, and I know you've done all the Kingdom Hearts video games. Yeah. Unfortunately, in recent years, some studios are very quick to recast their characters or what I like to call multicast because they can find someone cheaper and because the performer space isn't tied to it, they think they could get away with it. Personally, I'm not a big fan of that. I think it takes all the individuality out of the character. Whenever a project comes up, do you have first dibs? Do you still have to audition? How does that work? That's a really good question. You know, I don't know how other studios work, um, but Disney always calls the person first and it's yours to it's yours to turn down. That's not to say it's yours to negotiate any price you want. Like it's going to be what they offer. Like that's what they've got for that. There's not a lot of room for that. And I think that's maybe scheduling and money might be why some people don't say yes. Um, but a really good friend of mine who I know you know, Jody Benson, when I was cast as Meg, she called me right up and she's like, okay, Suits, let me give you some scoop on how to sort of like do this Disney thing. She says, there's going to be toys. There's going to be McDonald's like things. There's going to be talking dolls. There's going to be, you know, CDs. There's going to be all kinds of things. Just say yes. Say yes always like big price, little price, whatever it is, just say yes. Because over the long haul, it's, it's going to be a job that is going to keep you employed for a long time, but also don't ever let anybody else voice this girl. This girl is you, it's yours. And to this day, Jody Benson has recorded every single book on tape, every cartoon, every series, every doll, every, everything that is the voice of Ariel and the little mermaid has been Jody Benson. And that um, authenticity is there because of it, but also it is who she is. And it was great advice because I've had to twist my schedule around to be available to do this, but I'm so glad. And and like I say, because I love Meg so much, it's fun to revisit her. You know, Kingdom Hearts was the last thing I got to do with Meg and it had been a few years and um, it was fun working with the writers, you know, and sort of saying like, okay, they needed the game to cover these bases and um, and say these <laughs> kinds of lines, but that you could also sort of say, hey, you know, Meg might say it in this way. They're like, oh, you're right. You're right. So you still get to work on the character and develop her even more um, and have your, your influence kind of on it. And uh, so, yeah, Disney has always, in my experience, they, they've gone to the to the people and given them first dibs. Well, I think that's, I'm happy that it's worked out that way. And I also am very happy that you're sprinkling in some very great baseball references, you know, throughout some of uh, our conversation. And I think it's kind of fitting that you're, you told me before the show, you're an Anaheim Angels fan. Fitting, they were formerly owned by Disney. So I, obviously <laughs> they trained well to uh, speak the language a little bit. <laughs> It's true. I liked him before they were with Disney. I mean, like I'm a, you know, 70s, 80s baby. And uh, my mom was a diehard baseball fan. We went, we would go every, you know, home games all the time to Anaheim. My, I don't know, I went on to my older brother's all his baseball games. My mom was always keeping score. And yeah, I was listening to show tunes on the bleachers, you know. 
Baseball and Broadway have always been in the mix for me. Like this makes total sense to me. <laughs> well, thank you. I'm so glad to hear that. And uh, let me ask you, has uh, if you were ever asked, would you ever throw out a first pitch or sing the national <gasps> anthem at one of these ballparks? Okay, so it's funny. I would be far less nervous to just sing the national anthem than to throw the first pitch. Don't you feel like there's so much judgment? I mean, you know, I've been on many a softball field. My girls play softball, but like that pitcher's mound at home base on a professional field is a little further. And I would really have to get some coaching. I would need to call you and say, who do I coach with? Because I have seen the videos of some of those presidents who've had pretty lame pitches. And I do not want to be that. I want to be like, like, wow, Belle can throw. I want to be it, that girl. Yeah. yeah I've on- done the national anthem a lot. And that's just a lot easier, a lot less stressful. Yeah. You know, they, I know you're in Nashville now. There was talks that there were going to there was going to be a pro team that was coming down that way. And, you know, there was a whole movement. Dan Dombrowski was involved. He went and he ended up going to be the GM for the Phillies. But I really hope that happens because it's such a great city. I mean, I love the music down there. Obviously, I was showing you my grand old Opry mask before. I think that there needs to be some uh, pro baseball in Nashville. I agree with you. I mean, I'm forced to go to hockey here because there's no baseball team. And I mean, I like the Predators. I like the hockey. But yeah, baseball is what I grew up on. It's weird, actually, that Nashville doesn't have a team, but I don't think that will be forever. The city is just growing and coming into its own. And I think it's it's time. I, I could not agree more. And um you know, you've accomplished a lot in your career. So I do have to ask, you know, you talk about your friendship with Jody Benson, for example, you know, Paige O'Hara. Does it feel like there's kind of like a, a sorority, so to speak, of all like the Disney heroines? Can you give us a little bit of insight onto, you know, what goes on once you start a Disney classic, you know, like you ladies have? Yes. You know, Broadway in and of itself is a very small, tight knit family. And Never have I felt that more than over this last year, how we've sort of rallied behind people. Um, We've lost some really good friends and rallying behind their families uh, over this last year and just sort of being sensitive to each other and what people are up to and moving in and out of the city and waiting for these theaters to open back up. But there is a camaraderie among the leading ladies of Broadway and women in general that I don't think the public has always been aware of. I think the perception is that, you know, there's one leading lady role per show and we're all in competition against each other. And, you know, we're vying for that one spot. And it's really just not true. We know that success begets success. And I want this person to work and I want that person to work and they want me to work. And that is something that with Disney Princess, the concert, we actually get to explore and demonstrate in front of the public because there's four of us on a stage and we usually are the lone girl on stage. And so it's nice to show the diversity and to show how, how different we each are um, and different decades that we're in. I mean, I'm in my fifties now representing those ladies. Um, and I, um, and, and it's always been this way. Like there's always been this camaraderie and this support system. Everybody really has each other's back, but um you know, we finally get to display that a little bit and hopefully let people know that like women can support women. There's this weird sort of myth that women are kind of awful to each other. And hopefully we can exemplify that that isn't true and we lift each other up and that's the way it should be. I couldn't agree more. And I think that your disposition aligns so nicely with 
you know, Disney's overall message. Um, when you go to the parks these days, is it impossible for you not to be recognized, you know, being the royalty that you are in the universe? Nobody knows who I am. You're so sweet to even think so. We love the parks. Like I say, I am as much a Disney fan as I am a person who works for Disney all the time. Um, We were just in the parks, actually, in the park. We were down in Orlando, and they were doing such a good job of keeping people safe. Everybody was masked. Everybody was distanced. And yet the magic was 100% still there. And to get to take my daughters um, on, on those sort of trips and to experience that joy as a fan is um, pretty wonderful. Uh, it's, it's nice to be part of that Disney family. I mean, I do get to do some special things down there in the parks from time to time, and that's pretty awesome. But more often than not, I'm, I am a tourist like everybody else, and, uh, and no, nobody recognizes me. But I do sometimes get a VIP tour guide, and that rocks. <laughs> yeah, that's got to be pretty awesome. Maybe if you maybe if you spoke a little bit, though, I feel like they would pick up on Meg's voice right away, or the bell from you if you have a problem kids do. Isn't it funny? Yeah, there are, I have been stopped by kids like in restaurants saying, are you the voice of Meg? And it blows my mind. Their ears are so good. I'm like, uh, yes. How (laughs) random, but yes. And and also that I'm thinking, am I that sarcastic all the time? Like, I don't know. So not sure it's entirely a good thing. (laughs) I absolutely love it, Susan. And uh, one thing that I would love to do on this show with you is a little segment that uh, we call Fastball Derby. And I, I want you to picture yourself in the batter's box here. Um, Araldus Chapman is on the mound throwing 105 miles an hour. You got to think quick, all right? And basically, okay. I'm going to ask you a question. You're going to tell me the first thing that comes to mind. And since you're a great storyteller... Feel free to uh, throw some of those in there, too. Okay. All right. Ready. Favorite? Red batter up? Okay. (laughs) Greatest baseball game or sporting event you've ever been to? Oh, my gosh. Um, ah, I think it's the first hockey game I ever went to because I was on tour in Canada, and those people are crazy fans. I stopped watching the game, and I was watching the fandom. They are crazy, and it was hilarious. Favorite New York City meal? Oh, there's too many. Um, there's a little Italian restaurant way downtown. It's got like four tables at it, and I'm forgetting the name of it, but it is just home Italian cooking that to this day I still dream about like the meatballs. Thing you miss most about California? Oh, the beach, the water. America's band, the Beach Boys of the Eagles. Oh, gosh. Eagles. I have to say Eagles. Isn't that weird? I'm from Huntington Beach. Well, they're both California rock. So that, you know, yeah, but, you know. like, but the Beach Boys are literally from my hometown. But I'm still like, <laughs> the Eagles. Sorry. <laughs> no right or wrong answer there. Person in the audience you were most nervous or intimidated to perform in front of? Oh, Alan Macon. <laughs> Beauty and the Beast. It matters to me what he thinks. Yes. I mean, I just, you know, his opinion matters more than anybody else's. Like, I really didn't care what Eisner thought and those other people thought. Like, I didn't really know who they were. But Alan Macon, I'm like, I hope that I can live up to it. And yet he's the (laughs) nicest guy in the whole world. Like, he would never give you a negative comment. So 
I mean, I don't know why I was so scared in front of him all the time. I'm not anymore. <laughs> now we're just friends. <laughs> Yet you were unfazed by Eisner. He's kind of like the George Steinbrenner of the Disney family. <laughs> You're 100 right. But ignorance is bliss. Like I didn't know who that guy was in the, at my last audition. Do you know there were like all these Disney executives, including this really tall guy who kind of looked like David Letterman to me, and that was Michael Eisner. But I didn't know who that was. But I knew who Alan Menken was, and all I could see was him. And I'm like, ugh. (laughs) Fact about Susan Egan that would surprise people the most. Oh, um, that I I really just want to be a farmer. Like, I'm obsessed with chickens to really probably an unhealthy degree. Um, So, yeah, I was with uh, my sister has some chickens that I'm, like, babysitting right now. So I spent a lot of time with them this morning. So, yeah. You're Growing a California girl. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's cool. That hey, listen, gardening, that's that that's a fun hobby. If there was, you know, one skill I would have liked to have honed during this pandemic, it would have been gardening. So that, that's hard that's in a good New one. York City. Like your fire escape, yeah. maybe, like could have yeah. a few tomatoes, but yeah, yeah, yeah. It was I don't even have when I left New York, I was excited to have space for a garden. Yeah. That's awesome. Now uh this is a tough one. Most embarrassing onstage moment. Oh, God. Uh, Terry pulled my wig off in the middle of Beauty and the Beast accidentally on stage. It was mortifying. It was also hilarious, but it was also mortifying. Yeah, he didn't mean to. He's a beast. <laughs> I take it he wasn't on purpose. <laughs> it wasn't. He had these big rubber hands. He couldn't feel anything. And he was supposed to grab my sleeve and like it was a rip away sleeve. And we were having a hard time getting it to rip away because it was really the Velcro was strong. And, I, and he's like, I just don't want to hurt you. I go, you're not going to hurt me. I'm fine. I'm going to plant my feet. Just grab the sleeve and just yank as hard as you can. I promise you I'll pull two and, and it'll come. It'll rip away. I kid you not, the very next show, he grabs the sleeve and I had turned my head in just such a way that the ponytail of the wig was down my arm and he grabbed the ponytail too. And he did exactly what I asked him to, Al. He pulled really hard, really hard. And that wig was anchored to my head, but he yanked it off. And so I had this little skull cap. I looked like I was bald and I thought I've just sent 1,200 children to therapy and I'm going <laughs> to run off the stage now. Like it was, it was the week of the Tony Awards. Like it was stupidest. Like I like, I like, I honestly, it felt like I was naked. It was awful. It was awful. Oh, one of the better yeah. answers we've had to that question. Thank you for being so honest on that front. He feels terrible. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> All right. Now let's get back to the positive then. Proudest moment yeah. of your career. Proudest moment of my career. Um, wow. That's a really good question too. I think it has more to do with like the things that I get to do um, because of this. Um, I love when we have, you know, something that we did with Beauty and the Beast is we had, um, children from children's hospital come to the show on Saturdays and I would get to spend time with them in between the shows. And it sort of, it just put everything in perspective and to be in a position where, I mean, I, to get to be a character that brings joy to somebody who's going through a really hard time in their life. I can't share with you the kind of honor that that has. I, the impact was far greater on me than I'm sure it was on any of those children, but um, but it's something I hold really near and dear to my heart. And it, it's those kinds of opportunities that you get 
when you are lucky enough to to do something like this with a company like Disney because they do so much outreach and um you know I love that Meg, Meg Ryan said something really wonderful once on on Oprah she said uh, she finds it ridiculous that that because she's an actress she finds herself in a spotlight like what do actors know right she says but I decided really early that if I'm going to be in a spotlight I should stand next to something important and I always loved that she said that and she lives it and um and it's really inspiring to me and you think of people like Paul Newman and Audrey Hepburn who used their spotlight to for the greater good um and have left such an impact on our planet and i aspire to do things like that and i feel like i in small ways i've i've had those opportunities because of the the roles i've gotten to play couldn't agree more. And obviously, uh, we use this one to wrap every fastball derby. You touched on what Meg Ryan had to say, but would you say that's the best piece of advice anyone ever gave you? Because that's usually our standard uh, closing question. Oh, yeah. I mean, the best advice is really be true to yourself. Like there's that inner voice in you that's like, you know, you look fat in those pants, right? So that that's not the voice I'm talking about. That's like the inner critic that you can never shut up, but you can kind of put it on mute by just going nodding and going, mm-hmm, but I'm going to choose not to listen to you. And then there's the other voice that if you start listening to it, it'll get louder and louder and louder. And that's your gut. That's the one that says, take this job, not that job. That's the one that, that leads you down a path that you don't even know where it's leading. But if you listen to it, it's going to lead you to the right place. And every time I've not listened to that voice, I have regretted it. Even though when I listen to it, sometimes it leads me down unconventional paths, but ultimately I'm, I'll find out why. And it's like, oh, this is why I'm here. And so I really, you know, in my master classes with kids and, and, and with friends, I really try and encourage people like tune your ear to that voice inside of you because it somehow has the bigger picture. It can see more than you can. That is awesome stuff, Susan. Wow. <laughs> love to hear. So I, lo- I love to get the chills, you know, towards the end of the show. <laughs> and also choke up on the bat. Yeah. that Oh, that's good advice also too. Yeah. <laughs> do, do they kick off? Uh, you're going to do like an opening act, you know, with s- something baseball themed for the uh, concert tour. Do you need me to step concert? in? Yeah, yeah. I mean, what can you do? You know, I mean, it would have to be a bedazzled bat. Like it would uh, have to be something sparkly and maybe with a tiara on your ball cap. What do you I think? don't know if, yeah, see, I, I've got a Louisville slugger that I don't think that we oh. produce them in that line. So maybe, maybe, maybe I'm just yeah. best suited to be one of the, the, the outliers in the audience or something coming to see the show. Right. Cause well, then, you better I'm, sing along, right. <laughs> Deal. Absolutely. I, I, okay. I think it's so awesome. Like I said, it's such a huge catalyst for live theater coming back. And for the folks at home who want to get tickets and look where you're torn, where's the best place for them to find more information? I'm glad you asked. Go to DisneyPrincessConcert.com and you can learn all about the cast and um, and the producers and find out all the dates. And we have some really fun VIP packages where um, you can come to a VIP sound check and, and watch us work before we start the show, uh, which is going to be really fun. We do a little Q&A there as well. So we're trying to, you know, zhuzh it up and make it as interactive as possible and get people involved. And so there's, there's lots of opportunities there. So check out DisneyPrincessConcert.com. Epic, Susan. Epic. And um, listen, I cannot thank you enough for joining us on the show tonight. This was such a great time. And like, I feel so honored to be sitting here chatting with you. I love it. Thank you for such great questions. And I love the fastball. So good. Uh, 
Oh, well, th- thank you very much. I'll try to work on uh, my curveball uh, for, the, for the next time you come on, okay? <laughs> yeah, you, you threw a few curves. I'm like, oh, that's a new question. Okay, okay, let me think. That wow. was good. Well, you were on your game, and I cannot thank you enough for uh, coming on tonight. Thank you so much, Al, for having me. I appreciate it. You're very welcome. And uh, thank you to all the folks listening at home. I greatly appreciate it. Be sure to subscribe and follow Break a Bat wherever you get your podcasts. This is Al Malafronte signing off for the Broadway Podcast Network and the Break a Bat Podcast. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Break a Bat. This is produced by the fine folks at the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit and subscribe at bpn.fm slash breakabat. You can find me online at break underscore a underscore bat underscore podcast. And you can also find the Broadway Podcast Network on Instagram at Broadway Podcast Network. It's been so great having you here with us today, and we'll see you next time. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.